You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. The um, scripture reading today is Acts 3, 1 through 10. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we are always filled with wonder and amazement at your beautiful works and the miracles that you perform. And I I pray that we open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to small miracles that we walk around every day and we just take for granted. Your works are beautiful and divine and we're so thankful that we have you in our lives and your word for us to ponder and absorb and live by. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Jonna. Um, I wanted to, to start this morning just by uh, asking how many in the room, and this is, I'm expecting pretty much everybody, um, how many of you have faced the moral dilemma of wondering whether or not to give money to somebody who is asking for it on the side of the road? Anybody have to deal with that? Yeah, pretty much everybody has had to deal with that. And there's different um, opinions regarding what we ought to do in that type of a situation, right? Some people say, look, you should give money. Um, It is the right, godly thing to do. Whatever it is that they do with that money from that time on is between them and God. And I've heard people argue that way. I've heard other people say, "Um, you know what? I, I don't give money in that type of a situation. I'd rather give my money to an organization that makes sure that people in need actually uh, get those funds uh, to them in a way that help actually helps them. And so I don't give money in that situation so as to avoid any kind of potential enabling with addiction or, or things kind of like that. And I can understand that argument too. So there's like these going back, going back and forth between those two ways of looking at this type of, uh, of a situation. Now what's interesting about this passage though and sort of um, convicting and thought-provoking all at the same time, is it kind of cuts through that whole entire debate and seems to address something much more um, fundamental, right? And so I'm excited this morning, and I've been praying that the Spirit of God 
would just open up our minds and our hearts to receive what God has to tell us with regard to this type of thing uh, today. And as it relates to, this passage relates to healing and all the other multiple things that are going on um, in this passage, um, I'm, I'm hoping that God would really speak to us. Now, as we approach uh, this passage, I think one of the first things that we need to do is sort of take inventory of what is going on in this scene. Uh, note things like who the characters are, where this is taking place, the location, uh, the time, all that type of stuff. If we think about the characters, there are two main sets of characters, aren't there? There is the lame beggar on the one hand, and then there is Peter and John on the other hand. Now, when we think about the lame beggar, he is described as lame from birth, right? So that means that he has never walked a day in his life. And if you look in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, you learn that this man is now over 40 years of age. So I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who hasn't ever walked or who has been lamed from birth, uh, but I have, and their legs are, there's just like no musculature to them at all. Right, it's just basically, it almost, it's not quite, but it looks like skin just stretched over bones almost. Right, so this, this man has never ever walked. Right, and he is in a position now where he can't easily earn an income on his own. And so he has to beg for money. So he's this picture of, of need, isn't he? He even needs help to be put in a position to help. Right? His friends have to carry him to the place where he is begging. So you have a lame beggar on one hand, and then you have uh, Peter and John on the other hand, disciples of the risen Christ. Uh, and think about what they have just come through, right? We've walked through Acts chapter 2, right? The Holy Spirit has fallen upon them, along with uh, over 100 other people, right? In this amazing moment at Pentecost in this house in, in Jerusalem. And now they're making their way, as was their custom, we learn in Acts 2.46, to the temple, during this hour of prayer. And it's at this moment and in this place that their lives, they intersect here in this very public, very central place of the temple. Like when we think of the temple, there's really nothing like it in our own lives. It's the very center of, of, of religion and uh, politics for the, for the nation of Israel, for sure, but also you could say for the world. It, it's almost the place where if you think about the temple, um, even the tabernacle before it, and the way that it's described, uh, and heaven and earth were once apart to, you know, like kind of like work on with each other, right? And then the, at the fall, heaven and earth are separated. At the temple, it's almost like heaven and earth then kiss at this one point. So it's, it's the center place at which God is dealing with humankind, especially through the nation uh, of Israel, uh, and, and he relates to them in this old covenant type of way, right? So that is the significance of, of this place where this, this, these lives are now intersecting during this very high traffic time during afternoon prayer. So that sort of like sets the scene. So as you're reading through the book of Acts, right, the, the natural question that's going to come to your mind as you're coming, you know, off of, of Acts chapter 2 the reader is going to think, okay, God has just created this whole new entity called the church, right? The spirit-filled church. What kinds of things does the spirit-filled church 
do because this is like new in, in history. And so you have these representatives in Peter and John, right? And, and the question then becomes, what do spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus do in a situation like this? And what we see in our passage is that they do two things. They engage people in need right where they're at. That, that, that's the first thing that they do. And then they proclaim the healing power of Jesus. So they engage, that's our first point, and then they proclaim, that's our second point. So let's first think about how they engage people in need right where they're at. So picking it back up in verse 3, we read, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, that is the man who was lame from birth, asked to receive alms, like he's asking for money now. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Okay, so let's stop here for a moment. Now, think back on, on the question that we asked at the beginning and those experiences that you've had with panhandlers. Now, when, when you see a panhandler, what are some of the things that you think about or go through your mind? How do you react to that type of a situation? Bingo. You don't make eye contact. Anything else? Are there things that you assume? What's that? They're not going to use it for food. Okay, so maybe there's some kind of like addiction that may be involved here. That's one thing that can go on. Anything else? Their need is false, right? Because we, we all know the people down by um, Target, right, who like drive away in these fancy cars and you're like wondering like, wait a minute, what's going on right here? Like maybe their need is false. Um, maybe there's mental illness involved. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the situation is dangerous. So there's, there's kind of like these negative things that go through our mind, right? Now, in, in New Testament times, maybe not exactly those things are going through their mind, but there's some similarities. They're more likely to think like, I wonder who sinned, him or his parents, that would result in this type of a situation, right? You see that kind of thinking in John 9.1, for example. But either way, there are these negative thoughts directed to the panhandler, maybe he doesn't deserve any kind of help, and, and I don't think I, I want to engage, right? And so there's kind of like, at least in, in, in modern times, uh, there are sort of two reactions uh, to this kind of a situation that I have noticed that cover the majority of the reactions that, that I see, right? And, and piggybacking on what Nick said, right? The two reactions that I see are don't give money, don't make eye contact, keep moving. And the other reaction is, give money, don't make eye contact, keep moving, right? <clears throat> but either way, it's like you, you don't engage with the person. And that's what I think was happening probably day in and day out for this lame beggar, right? People were coming in and out of the temple, and they largely looked at him as a problem to solve, right? Do I give money or do I not give money? But I don't, I think in terms of his humanity, he was largely invisible, right? And I, I don't know if you've ever been on either side of that equation where you find yourself, you're, you're just looking through a person or not even, you're like intentionally not looking in that direction um, at all, right? Because you, 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 you there's another aspect to this too where, 
Um, we all have this experience where when we come into contact with people in need, it's like we ask the question, well, how much are they going to take from me? Right? And I, I think about um, even just, you know, sometimes coming into my office, I, I, I pass by people who are in great need. And sometimes I engage and sometimes I don't. Right, And I think the times that I don't, it's like, man, you know, I've been in a conversation with them before, and sometimes I'm ready for that, and I'm like, you know, this person is made in the image of God, and I want to engage, but then other times it's like, oh, gosh, how much is this going to take? Right? And, so, and so I just, I kind of push them outside, of, out of my mind, right, and they become invisible. And so, and maybe some of you have been on the receiving end of that. You felt like you're invisible. And if you've ever felt that way, then you can kind of relate to this lame beggar, because I think his whole existence was kind of summed up in that. I mean, he has these friends that take him there, but then other than that, he's, he's probably just not seen. And that's what makes this reaction on the part of the disciples so remarkable. Uh, looking back on verse 4, it says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from him, from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, we're going to get back to the healing. But I just want you to notice two things about Peter and John here. There's things that you're probably expecting, right? They saw this disabled beggar. They saw him for who they saw him as a person. And so they they engaged him. They did the opposite of avoiding eye contact. Right? And the other thing that they did was that they gave what they had. So they didn't have any money. So all of a sudden there's this third option that pokes up. Right? It's like um, they didn't have any money to give. You know, so it's not about like, do we give money, do we not give money? It's can we engage this person? Now, why do you think Peter and John were like that? Were they just like, man, this is, these are super moral people. Like these are, they're superior morally than the other people around them. I, I don't think that that is the case for Peter and John. I think they're sinners who've been changed by Jesus. Right? They walk with Jesus, and now the spirit of Jesus lives inside of them. And what was Jesus like? Jesus saw people. And no matter what TBN tells you, Jesus didn't have a lot of means, right? But he gave what he had, and what he had was his whole self. Right? He went to the cross on our behalf, and now we have these disciples of Jesus, and so that now they see people and they give with what they have. So when we're asking the question, you know, you come off of Acts chapter 2, and it's like, okay, what, what are spirit-filled disciples like? Spirit-filled disciples, right? Spirit-empowered disciples, by the power of the Spirit, they see people as people. In, in fact, when we find ourselves not seeing people as people, then that is an indicator to us, it's sort of like taking our temperature and then realizing, okay, wait a minute, um, I am not operating by the Spirit. I am operating out of the flesh. And that's not to pour judgment on anybody. That's just this 
this realization where you can come to like, oh, Father, right? I, I, I am again learning how I am not like Jesus, but you are committed to make me like Jesus when I turn to you in faith. And so by your spirit, make me like Jesus. I, I want to see people. So that, that's one thing that spirit-empowered disciples do. They see people as people. But that's not the only thing that, that Peter and John do, right? They, they proclaim the healing power of Jesus. Getting back to verse 6. There it says, And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So remember what I said earlier about the legs of somebody who's been lame their whole life. So it's not just a matter of like, okay, there's some things. I had a, a torn ligament or something like that, and that's been fixed. And it's like stuff that wasn't there became there, right? Like he had muscles that were not developed that are now there, right? And so now he's able to walk. Goes on to say in verse uh, 8, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So there's a couple of things that we can say about this healing. For one, it is done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, when we use the phrase in the name of, that means by the power of. So like if you look later in Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin are asking Peter and John a question, and they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? Very similar to another question they asked of Jesus when he came in and overturned the temple. A lot of Acts is kind of like, it's almost like a, a reboot of the Jesus story. And th that's very uh, intentional, right? And so, okay, they're at, okay, but it's, what power did you do this? What name did you do this? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's even a lot packed into the way that they present Jesus' name. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves or Yahweh heals. He is the Christ, right? He was prophesied long ago to come from the line of David. So he, Yahweh saves in the form of the Christ, right? But he's also of Nazareth. Nazareth being this very small, very insignificant town that's not even talked about outside of the New Testament. It's that small, right? And so it is basically, if it has any reputation at all, it is, is it good or bad? It's bad, right? Nathaniel says, like, you know, how could the Messiah come from Nazareth, right? In John chapter 1, verse 46, right? But most of the time, people aren't thinking about Nazareth at all, right? It's invisible, right? So it's almost in the sense where, where Peter is saying, look, in, in faith, I now call upon my humble king who, who knows what it's, what it's like to live as a human, to have, to be of no reputation, basically invisible, right? but he, he is, he's come to save, and so therefore, therefore walk. So he heals in the name of Jesus, by the power of Jesus. And there's a couple of reasons for this healing. Uh, I mean, not to, like, not to leave, John and Peter, they, they have compassion on this man. There's no doubt about that. But, but I, I think that there's something else going on too. Right? It serves as a signpost, a, a signal, 
that the future messianic age is sort of leaking into the present. Like if there were a membrane between this age and the age to come, right, Jesus has poked holes in that membrane so that the future begins to leak into the present at this moment. You know, it's interesting in Luke chapter 7, uh, John the Baptist, he's sitting in jail and he sends two of his disciples um, to ask Jesus about his messianic credentials, right? Because he's sitting in jail, right? And so he uh, poses the question in this way in verse 19. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Right? I'm sitting in jail. Are you the Messiah or are you not the Messiah? Now, Jesus responds to that in verse 22 and says this. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. In other words, the future messianic age, talked about in Isaiah, is leaking into the present. Right? Through me. It's breaking in into the present through me. Yes, I am the Messiah. And then what is happening in this passage is that just like Acts 1 was talking about, like my previous work was about what Jesus began to do. Right now it's talking about, okay, this is what my disciples are continuing to do. They are proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus breaking into the present. It's interesting, even in the language that is used to talk about how the lame man leaped, right? He uses a very specific and rare word to create this verbal link between this event and what was talked about in the, in the Greek translation of Isaiah chapter 35. And there in that passage, so this is a passage that is, is looking forward to the messianic age. It says this, beginning in verse 5 of Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And so this is meant to be sort of like a, just a, it's a sample of the new creation is now breaking into the present. And so you think about the result of all this, a, a lame man, he is healed and he walks, but think about also where this is happening, right? It's in the presence of many other people at the temple, the place where God was relating to his people through an old covenant with all these sacrifices and all the things that went along with the temple, which were good, but were not enough and pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So there's a sense in which, right, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes down on the new people of God. The first thing that they do, in a sense, is announce the arrival of a new covenant through this healing at the temple. And then what does this lame beggar then do? Right, he then begins to worship God along with the rest of Jesus's community, right? And he enters into the temple along with them, a place that he was prohibitive to go just moments prior, right? And, and if you think about um, the symbolism of infirmity throughout the whole Bible, it's a symbolism of, of what uh, the, the, the fall has, uh, how it has affected us. Right? And so where there is blindness, where there is lameness, where all those things, when the messianic age comes, those, those things are healed right? And on a physical level, but it actually points down to even a more fundamental level, a spiritual level. 
right? What prevents somebody from worshiping God in fullness? Sin. What is represented in lameness and blindness? Sin. God the Savior, Yahweh saves, comes, Yeshua comes, delivers, heals, breaks down the barriers that exist so that you may enter into the temple, i.e. representative of the courts of heaven, and worship the living God in wholeness. So all of this, so this is what I'm saying. This is, this is way more than just a miraculous healing. This means all of this, right? And so there is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ happening with reference to this healing. And it's an invitation for us to come and join in this kingdom that is not now around sacrifices at the temple or these, this, that, or the other. It's pointing to Jesus. Right? He is the king who is creating this new kingdom that has now been inaugurated in our midst. And one sign of that, just one sign of that, is this healing of this lame man. Now, that brings us to another question. Okay, I get that for then. So what about now? Like, how should we think about physical healing now in, in, in the present? And, and I feel like we need a, a more, I know that I do, I, I need a more robust sort of understanding, a theology regarding physical healing that begins with the idea that all illness all, uh, any kind of illness, any kind of malady, any kind of way in which your body doesn't work, right? That came to us as a result of the fall, right? So our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? When they turned away from God, who is the source of all life, guess what? When you unplug from life, what do you think is going to start happening? You're going to start decaying and dying, right? That makes sense. And so when God the Father, he tells uh, our first uh, father, Adam, back in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 16 and 17. He says, look, I put you in this garden. I don't want you to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you're not able to handle it. Like, you should, you should trust me and I'll tell you what's good and what's evil. In, in fact, you don't even have to think about it. If you just hold my hand, we'll always do what's good. We'll always do what's right. But as soon as you say, no, 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 I want, I want to be the one to be the arbiter of that. I'm going to eat of this. I want to be wise, right? Like you are wise, except for, you know, your brain is infinite and my brain is like this, right? But as soon as you say, no, I want to go my own way, right? he says, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Now, did Adam on that day just fall down dead? No. But death then, then entered into the, into the world. Right? We learned that from Romans 5. So he's like, a, he's like a flower that's been plucked out of the ground right? and that begins to wither and die. Now, now, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, in his coming, in his dying on the cross in our place, in, in rising from the dead, he is reversing the effects of the fall. So, for example, in the prophet Isaiah, back in, in Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, referring to the Messiah that was to come, he says this um, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief. The NIV translates that infirmities. 
And then later on in verse 5, it says, and with his wounds we are healed. So, okay, the interesting thing about this passage is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter takes that passage and understands it to refer to spiritual healing. By his wounds, we are healed spiritually, right? So there's that kind of emphasis that Peter is having. In Matthew chapter 8, right, uh, the way that Matthew uses or references this passage, it's more talking about physical healing. So in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, this is just after Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law. Right? And the whole town of Capernaum gets super excited. Right? So you heal, you know, just think about it. <laughs> somebody comes in and heals somebody, you're like, oh, wait a minute, I know some sick people. And so uh, they all are kind of like showing up at the doorstep. And then we read this passage. That evening, they, so all the residents of Capernaum, brought to him, that is Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. It's a big day for that town. He healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. So through Jesus' death and resurrection comes healing. The healing of the whole person, beginning with the spiritual, where God gives a new heart, and then one day blossoming to physical healing at the resurrection, right? So I think we all kind of get that, right? God, God is not just interested in your spirit or your soul. He's interested in all of you and redeeming all of you. Like his creation is good. And so when Christ comes and redeems the world and restores the world, he restores all of you, and that's what part of the resurrection, the coming resurrection is about. But in addition to that, there are times when God chooses to give a foretaste of that future resurrection in the present. In the present. It's interesting to note, even um, in this passage, when, when Peter... Um, raises the lame man up. That word raised him up is used elsewhere in the book of Acts, but it's always with reference to God raising Jesus from the dead. Right? And part of the connection that is being made there is this is a foretaste of the resurrection. When healings happen, it just gives you a little sort of like Costco sample of what the future resurrection is going to be all about. Paul will talk about people within the body of Christ who have the gift of healings or the gift of miracles. James will talk about how he exhorts the elders to lay their hands on the sick and anoint them with, with oil in faith so that they might, be, they might be healed. And so there is this sense in which when God performs a healing in our midst in, today, it serves the same purpose as it did back then with the healing of this lame man. 
It shows us that God is compassionate. It foreshadows the resurrection. It lets us know that the inbreaking of Jesus' kingdom is already not yet kingdom is breaking into the present at this moment. It is a foretaste of the new creation that is to come. And all the healing that happens today has to be understood within this framework. But then there's two things, I think, if, with all that, and maybe your head is swimming with all of that, the two things that we need to take away from all of this is, as we think about healings that maybe you hear about today, there's two truths to kind of grab onto. One is that God still heals. He still heals. We border, Andrew DeCanter borders on practical naturalism. Let me explain what I mean by that. I say I believe in a God that works in the world. I say that I am not a deist. I don't think that God wound up a clock and then let it go. That's what I say with my mouth. But then I begin to wonder if I actually believe that God can intervene miraculously in the world. That can be difficult for me to believe, right? Because, I mean, it's just part of my culture right? Uh, part of the enlightenment is, it, it, my, my frame of reference is to think those kinds of things don't ever happen. But one truth to hold on to is that, no, no, God still heals. I, I was listening to a podcast this last week that was talking of, about um, Charles Spurgeon. So do you guys know Charles Spurgeon? Right, so he's a reformed Baptist pastor. Right, so I'm not talking about, okay. Um, but here's the thing. Like, when, 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 they, when they were doing his autobiography, the autobiography that they wrote back then, right, one of the things that they noted about him was how many people he healed in Jesus' name. Right now, no, so, okay, so he's a Reformed Baptist, so he comes from a tradition where it's like those things don't happen, right? You know, or, or, or they don't happen in the way that we sometimes think of them happen. So, he, so he, he's like, well, they're like, ask him, do you have the gift of healing? He's like, uh, no, I don't think so. But <laughs> the thing about it is, though, his reputation in London, though, was that he was healing more people than the physicians in London were healing. And so what, I mean, what do you do with that? Right? You just, I, I don't know what to do with that, right? Um, I was listening to Dave, uh, Dr. Greg Keener, who is a professor out at Asbury Theological Seminary. This guy is so, so nerdy. I mean, I just can't even believe. I mean, he's written over 30 books. Some of them are over 1,000 pages long. And some of them are regarded as the standard work for whatever topic it is. Like, he has a four-volume set. <laughs> it's too expensive even for me to buy. But it's like, it's this, it's like this on just commenting on the book of Acts. And you're like, what, what is wrong with you? You know what I'm saying? And so here's this, but he, and he did research on miracles in modern times. And he, he held it up to this very stringent criteria. And he's like, I, I mean, I don't know what to say, guys. Because miracles are happening. Like, p things happen. Like, dreams come to Muslims for real. Like, you know, people have been raised from the dead, even in our time. Now, I'm not saying, look, this is, okay. So, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the local congregation down the street where, hey, you can go every Sunday 
and people will be raised from the dead and all that. I'm not talking about that necessarily. I'm just saying, can we be open to the fact that God still heals? And by the way, it's him the one that does it, right? It's, it's not in the it's not like we need to learn. I was at a meeting just a couple of weeks ago where it was like, yeah, divine healing happens today. And this, anyway. But it was like, and then there was like this criteria, like you do this, and then the step two, step three, step four, step five, every time healed. And you're kind of like, ah, no, I don't really. I mean, it's like, no, no, there's, there's not a magic formula. This is in accordance with God's will. Healing doesn't happen because of a formula. It, become, it, it happens because it is God's will. And it happens in the power of Jesus, because of Jesus' power. Not the power of the person laying on the hands or, or anything like, like that. And the, the reason for that and why that's so important is, is uh, that Jesus is the one who then gets the glory as the divine healer and not the person laying on of the hands. And <clears throat> Peter... This, this is how he thinks about it. Right? If you look later in Acts chapter 3, verse 12, Peter says to this crowd, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or even piety we have made him walk? Or, or a little bit later in Acts chapter 4, he says this to the Jewish leaders beginning in verse 9. If we are being examined today concerning, see, even in Acts chapter 4, we're still talking about this lame beggar because people are like, what, in, what do we do with this? And some people are upset. Upset? He was lame. He couldn't walk. Now he walks. You're upset? I'm sorry. Uh, verse 9. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Can we be open to God healing if he wants to? So that, that's one truth we need to hold on to. God still heals. The other truth that we need to hold on to is that God still heals in his own time. Like, he's the one who decides. If you notice Jesus, sorry, I, I'm still processing this meeting that I went to, okay? Because like, they said, um, God, heal, God, uh, uh, God hates illness. I can go along with that. It is never God's will for there to be any illness. What? Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just sitting there listening, right? And so he heals every single time, right? Okay, well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus heal every person that needed healing? The answer to that is no. Did the disciples of Jesus heal everybody that needed healing? The answer to that is no. And what about the ongoing illnesses that we see in the New Testament? Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. Timothy, it seems like this guy's a really sick guy, <laughs> you know? He's just constantly getting sick, right? First Timothy chapter 5, right? 
Or even Paul himself, and there's some debate about this, or the thorn in the flesh. Right? Could that be a physical ailment? How many times does Jesus pray for that to go away? Or Jesus, Paul pray for that to go away? And then three times? And what does God tell him? No! Right? Because my grace is sufficient for you. Like, because here's the point, is like, we, we, we can get enamored with healings. So on one level, I want, like for us, especially like our group, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but we're kind of, we, we kind of maybe stuck in naturalism. Like we don't maybe even really think that God could really heal. But other people are just, they can get so enamored with it that it becomes the main thing. Right? And what God is saying, no, no, it's not the main thing. Right? I, God will heal those who belong to Jesus completely, spiritually, physically, completely at the resurrection. Right? And he will sometimes, he will sometimes give a preview of what that resurrection is like by healing today. But it is God's choice. And we can trust him. He, know, he knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly how to reach people. Right? And so sometimes it is better, like as in Paul's case, Timothy's case, do you think God doesn't love Timothy? He's, he's like, I'm not going to, I have something better than healing you right now. I, I'm, I'm going to teach you to, to learn what it's like to suffer and for me to be enough so that you can come alongside of other people who are suffering and, and together you know that, man, Jesus is enough. Jesus still heals, but he heals in his own timing. And in the, in the meantime, and, and I mean, I have my own people in my own life that I, I wish were healed of something. In the meantime, can we just open ourselves up to, to the Spirit and say, help me know what to do. I don't know whether to give this person money or not. Help me know what to do. Give me a heart that engages people. Help me to proclaim the healing power of Jesus who heals our hearts and will one day heal us completely. Let's pray together. Father, help us, help us to believe because... Um, I just feel like we, we barely believe you are who you say you are. Lord, you, you do change hearts. You do deliver people from sin. Lord, we do believe that you will, you will change us from the inside out by the power of your spirit. And Lord, today we, we do proclaim your healing power, Lord Jesus. You heal people spiritually, one day physically, some, sometimes physically, even today. Lord, just help us to, to follow you wherever you send us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.